0: We are in the book of Malachi. We have a six-week series that we're walking through. This will bring us halfway through the series. We're in Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. We're going to talk about marriage faithfulness. We're going to talk about it from the fiery indictments of an Old Testament prophet. But what we need to hear is the call of Scripture and the call of God to faithfulness in the way that we are in relationship, and in the way that we are married. And so, will you read with me then God's Word, starting in verse 10? He says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our Father's? Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and he's married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, and he descend into the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And the second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears and with weeping and with groaning because He no longer regards your offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does He not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did He not make them one? So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. The Word of God. Pray with me. Our Father, we have indeed come together to you, to your presence, to your worship. And we long for you to come even now, Father. Would you, by your Spirit, in the Word as it is preached, in the hearts of your people, would you cause your Word to live? to capture us, to bring us to conviction and repentance, to bring us to more closely following Jesus in the way that we're married. For we ask it in the name of Jesus, for His sake. Amen. So the last couple of weeks, in the last couple of chapters, we see that Malachi began by reminding uh, God's people of his electing love. I have loved you, he says, and right? I have chosen you, he said. But then he also brought the indictment and he charged his people with becoming insensitive to his deep, abiding, electing love. And he moved on to say that not only are they insensitive, but they're actually despising his name. By offering lame worship. There was a conspiracy uh, that the people were bringing sick and diseased animals for sacrifice, and the priests, who were supposed to be enforcers of the law, keeping the Mosaic Covenant, should not have accepted them. But the people were bringing lame, blind sacrifices, animals, and the priests were accepting those animals and offering them to God. And he says, you're profaning the covenant, your worship is not acceptable And we talked about that, those sacrifices were to be unblemished because the Lamb of God ultimately would be the sinless, unblemished offering that would save us from our sins. And it was meant to to point ahead and to hold the place and to honor what God was going to do in Christ. They were violating it. Now he turns to the people and he addresses their lack, our lack at times of faithfulness. It's a faithfulness in the larger community. He says we're being unfaithful to each other. Verse 10 is a reminder. Right? It says in verse 10, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? It's a, a reminder of the special covenant relationship that He enjoys with His people. He says, I am your Creator. and I am your Father. I own you by creation. I made you. In my own image, you are mine by creation, but I have also saved you and called you and elected you as my own people, as my own children, and I'm your Father. You are mine by creation and by adoption. And so it reminds us last week, because last week this section started out, he started out saying a father deserves his respect and a master deserves his honor, but if I am a master and a father, where is mine? He reminds them again, I am your creator, your Lord. I am your father. So don't be faithless. He asks the question in verse 10, why are we faithless? And if you were following it as I read it, all the way down in verse 16, where we finished, the very last thing he says is, do not be faithless. So we see this is all one section addressing this issue. Why are we faithless? Don't be faithless bookends the conversation that God is having with his people. And that is the, the conclusion, the application of it in the end is, don't be faithless. If you're wondering at the very end, what's the application of all this? Well, there it is. He uses the word faithless in this text, what we just read. These seven verses, in seven verses, five times, he uses the word faithless. Why are we faithless? Let's not be faithless. To be faithless, it's not a word we use a lot. We would probably say it more like, don't be unfaithful. But there is that sense in being faithless is making promises and breaking them, of of betraying a promise, betraying a covenant that God has with his people. They're betraying the covenant and the promises within that covenant that, that he has ordered our relationships and we're breaking those, co- we, by breaking covenant with our people in our community in various ways, we're breaking covenant with him. Being faithless with each other is to be faithless with him, he says. But KJV says that we deal treacherously. So he starts out with faithfulness in general, but he moves very quickly and specifically to marriage. This is why are we faithless in our relationships in so many ways? We're, we're not doing what is right and doing right by each other, but he moves very specifically to two concerns around marriage, two concerns, two aspects of of what it means to honor Him in the way that we relate, that they were violating and being faithless with each other and so faithless with Him. One, He says we should marry only in the Lord. And we see this in verses 11 and following. They're marrying the daughters of a foreign God. But secondly, He says we should not divorce our spouses with whom we made a covenant. We shouldn't marry outside the Lord and we should not, when we do marry, Be faithless and break covenant. He says in verse 10, when we do either of these, we profane His covenant, right? Why Why are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Again, when we break covenant with each other, we break covenant, the covenant of our fathers. For them, this is the Mosaic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, and for us, it is the new covenant. We're going to see both of these things reiterated in the New Testament. To profane the covenant means to break it, to disregard what is sacred and holy, this covenant that he has made, this sacred and holy relationship that they have with God. To profane it is to break it, to treat it as as less than holy, to disregard it, to desecrate it, to be faithless. Now I'm going to say up front, because he gets pretty intense. <laughs> so I'm going to say up front that there, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, there are grounds for divorce. There are biblical grounds. There are ways that the covenant can be broken. And in those circumstances, uh, there, there are what we would call biblical grounds for a divorce. Adultery breaks covenant. And Jesus says, except for, except for adultery, that we should not uh, divorce. And so there are, for adultery, we would say abuse. There's, there's the, uh, the abandoning of the relationship by one spouse. And the other spouse is innocent in that. Uh, and where there's abuse, it's a form of abandoning. And we would say no one should stay in a relationship that is abusive. And so we never hear when we, when we preach the truth here of what, we, what some of the scholars are calling aversion divorce. It's this American sense of, of divorcing over irreconcilable differences, a no-fault divorce. And the Bible says there's no such thing. And we should, not, we should not divorce unless there are biblical grounds of adultery or abuse or abandonment. And those are grounds that the church helps us to decide are present. But I would say no one should stay in a, an abusive situation. If you are in an abusive situation, you should seek help immediately. And you should talk to a pastor or an elder or, in, if it's a physical, to lawful authorities. So hear that up front, that, that there aren't exceptions to the rule. But then there is the rule. The first thing that he tells us is that we should marry only in the Lord. Verse 11, he says, Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. How has he done this? How has he profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, the worship of God? And he says, "It's, it's, it's what he loves, the Lord loves. And he says, because he has married the daughter of a foreign God. You have introduced idolatry, godlessness into worship. Profaning the covenant, the first way we profane the covenant and we are faithless is marrying outside the faith, which he calls here an abomination. That's a word that's often used in in relation to worship, right? The abomination that causes desolation, or or it can be translated as detestable. It's something that that fouls worship, that profanes the worship of God. Now, to be clear, let me be very clear on what he is saying here. This is not a prohibition against marrying someone of another race. The issue isn't about race. The issue is about worship. And that worship is about the faith of the person that you're marrying. Right? So in Table Talk, I was reading that's Ligonier and R.C. Sproul. They said, Scripture never forbids intermarrying with people merely because they are of different racial or cultural backgrounds. Rather, what is forbidden is marrying outside the faith of Israel. We see this in the New Testament. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. Like those categories are gone, right? But it's about the faith of God's people that we're all one in Christ. So it's about the faith, not about the race. And the New Testament and the Old Testament are both very clear on this. And we see even examples, I can give five or six, you know, Moses married a Midianite, but the definitive example to move us forward is that Boaz married Ruth, and Ruth was a Moabite. And Boaz marries Ruth, and Ruth ends up then in the lineage of Jesus, in his royal lineage. So there's not only not a problem of it, it's part literally of our saving lineage. So I want to just be very clear about that. The issue is in verse 11, you married the daughter of a foreign god. Someone who worships, not the God of Israel. They worship a different God or no God at all, right? It's godless. Anything that is not the worship of the God of the Scripture, the God, the one true and living God is godless, whether it is the worship of false gods or no God. Douglas Stewart, one of the commentators I was reading, says marriage with people of other nations is attacked not because of ethnic, racial, or national bias, but because it represents the compromising of the true revealed faith by conjoining pagan and believer in a one flesh union. Deliberately entering into this union with the false moral uh, different moral categories. And right here, he's worried about the moral categories. The, the prophets are calling them to, that, to a godliness, a, a morality in line with God's character, and to, to take someone who loves the holiness of God and the righteousness of God and the worship of God and to combine that deliberately with someone who doesn't believe any of it, doesn't worship, and doesn't follow he says, is an act of faithlessness. It's a betrayal of the covenant. The strong word abomination or detestable refers to that profaning of the worship. And We'll see why here in the, in the New Testament. But verse 12 tells us just how seriously he takes it. He says, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob anyone who does this. Now God reiterates and reinforces this even in the New Testament for believers that it's important that we marry in the faith. And he applies this to us as Christians. So here's 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 16, where he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Don't be unequally, you know, connected together with unbelievers. Some want to say this is just about like business things. But unbelievers and believers work in business all the time. And there's usually not an issue. But the issue, what is the issue here for people for both God in, in Malachi, but also for God here in 2 Corinthians as it goes on. What partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord does Christ have with Belial, the, a foreign god? What connection is there between Christ and a foreign god? What portion does a believer share with the unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God... And idols, and then here's the the key thing again, we are the temple of the living God. What agreement can there be between the temple and idols? And we are that temple. How how dare we take the temple that is filled with the Holy Spirit and belongs to him and to his worship and unite it purposefully? What agreement is there? with light and darkness. And so in 1 Corinthians 7, 39, when he's talking about marriage and divorce, and after talking and actually talking about where there's one possibility of a biblical divorce, where a woman has been abandoned by her husband, it says that she is free, that for her she is free to remarry, because she was abandoned, she didn't pursue the divorce unbiblically, she's free to marry whom she wishes only in the Lord. Why is this so important? And we've seen already this. It first and foremost dishonors God in Christ. We are the temple, he says. And what fellowship can there be between the temple and those who dishonor God in Christ? How can we connect his temple with idols and unbelief and faithlessness? Malachi is clear that marrying people who are not believers are not good for our spiritual health. He says there, there are spiritual consequences you know, to that, that it's not good for us. And usually, instead of pulling people in, as often or not, we're pulled away. He says it dilutes the, dilutes the house, it dilutes the worship, it dilutes the relationship with the children in terms of the faith and to raise our children in the faith. And so those are the, the things. First, it is dishonoring to God, but second of all, it's not good for us. And third of all, it's not good for our children. In verse 15, he says, and he's talking about divorce. I think it applies just as well in this situation, and maybe it's meant to. But in verse 15, he says, what is it that the Lord is concerned about? What is the one God seeking but godly offspring? That our children would grow up in the faith. But if you're already married to an unbeliever, and this is, this is uh, in the New Testament, what if you find yourself, you come to Christ and your spouse doesn't? The New Testament actually addresses this because in those days, in the first generation of Christians where Christ is being preached and people are coming to the faith, he said they're, they're not uncommon for one spouse to come to Christ and one not come. In that case, he says, we should not pursue divorce. Right? We should, he says, two wrongs essentially don't make a right. That if you end up in a relationship that way, that we can't make it right by divorcing, because as we're going to get into the next section here, about how seriously God takes the covenant of marriage and how important it is in his thinking that if you find yourself unequally yoked, he says you should not pursue divorce. You should keep your promises, keep your covenant, and not be faithless by. in a situation you didn't intend to be in, and you shouldn't be faithless to get out of it. And so in 1 Corinthians 7.13, he says, if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever, if you've come to faith and your husband haven't, switch that around. If any man has a wife who's an unbeliever, and he or she consents to live with her, then she should not divorce him. And notice that Paul needs to say that. Because the scripture is clear, it's forbidden to marry outside of the faith. Well, what happens if I find myself in an unequally yoked marriage? Because somebody comes to faith, right? And so he needs to to clarify, in that case, you should not pursue divorce. We should pray, and by God's grace, there is a hope by God's grace they may come to faith. 1 Peter 3 talks about this. If a a woman has an unbelieving husband, that she should pray for him and live a godly life. and, and, And in God's grace, he too may come to faith. But we should not tempt God, dishonor God by pursuing such a relationship. To keep faith with God in his worship, in his temple, to be faithful to the covenant is to marry in the faith. Secondly, the second area of marriage, so we we are to marry in the Lord and we are also then to be faithful in that marriage. And so we see this in 13 to 16, he says the second thing you do, he says you're you cover the Lord's altar with weeping and tears and, and groaning because the, the Lord no longer is regarding your offering. He's not accepting it with favor from your hand. Why, they say, because the Lord is a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion, your wife by covenant, did he not make them one? He introduces a second form of marital faithlessness, not only marrying outside of the faith, but by describing the spiritual consequences. It's interesting, he starts in 13 saying, the second thing is that you're, you're unhappy, you're, there's a spiritual almost depression, there's a weeping in worship, and he says, because God is not accepting your offerings. He's not accepting your worship. And then, then, then they say, well, why is he not? And he answers them. It reminds me very much of, it took me immediately to thinking of Matthew 5, 23 and 4, where Jesus says something similar. He says, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember, your brother has something against you. There's broken relationship, faithlessness. There's something that needs to be fixed. And there, you remember, he has something against you. Leave your gift there on the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. What an interesting passage! Jesus is saying there's something about our covenant faithfulness to God is involves our faithfulness to each other, right? And he's saying if you're there offering your gift on the altar and worship, part of your worship. You know, that, that is even prior to whatever offering you're bringing is, is faithfulness in the community. First, go and be reconciled. Make things right. Then, come and offer. He is saying literally this brokenness, this faithlessness in the community literally interrupts worship. I'll leave it on the altar and first go and be reconciled. People questioning, why is our worship no longer acceptable? And the Lord answers, verse 14, because you have been faithless in marriage. God stands as a witness. Because the Lord was a witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you've been faithless. Your wife by covenant. See, a covenant, there's a lot to be said biblically about covenant. But for our purposes today, let's just say a covenant is a coming together in a formal, structured relationship that is defined by vows and promises. Right? It's a formal, structured relationship that is defined by promises and vows. Every wedding I stay, I stand up. The very first thing out of my mouth is, you know, good, you know, good morning, good afternoon. Uh, friends and family, we have gathered here today in the presence of God and of all these witnesses, to join these two together. In the presence of God and all these witnesses, if you're invited to a wedding, particularly if you are in the wedding party, if you're asked to stand up as a groomsman or a bridesmaid, in many ways, you are a witness, and in that sense, biblically, as a covenant enforcer, like you witness these vows, and you're some of the most important people in their lives, and part of your job, having been asked to stand up, as their witnesses, is to help them, encourage them to keep faith. As covenant enforced, as God is saying here, I am a witness between you and, the, and, your, and, and, and your wife, the, the bride of your youth, the one with whom you made a covenant, and as witness, he's an enforcer. He's a witness to what? To the vows. So the vows I've used have changed over the years a little bit. There are are a lot of traditional vows in different traditions. They have different ones. They vary slightly. The ones I've landed on that I've used most recently are these. I take you to be my wedded wife or husband. And from this day forward, I promise to love you, to honor you, to comfort you, to forgive you, even as God has forgiven me. I will always be faithful to you. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. And therefore, I receive you as God's special gift to me. This I promise before him. Marriage is defined by those promises. In the presence of God and of all these witnesses, we swear, we promise, we vow to faithfully to the best of our ability to do certain things, to love and to honor and to cherish and to forgive, to be faithful. Verse 15, he says, does he not make them one? In Matthew 19, Jesus quotes the Old Testament when he's being confronted about divorce, about marriage and the sanctity of marriage and its abiding nature and he's confronted about it and Jesus quotes the Old Testament. man leaves his father and his mother and joined to his wife, cleaves to his wife. But when he's unquoting the Old Testament, he makes his own conclusion. There's the quote and then Jesus makes his own conclusion. He says, Therefore, they are no longer two but one flesh. Has God not made them one, therefore there are no longer two, but one flesh. And what God has joined together, let no man separate, which is what he says here, do not be faithless. and Do not leave the spouse, your husband or wife of your youth and of your covenant making. He says the same thing. She is your companion. He is your companion. He has made us one, flesh. And so Jesus reiterates this, the covenantal nature of marriage. But I want us to notice the positive thrust of the vows. Right? The husband and wife, what are they doing? They're each promising to do certain things. Right? The husband isn't making any, she makes her own promises. Right? The husband makes his promises. This is what I am going to do. I'm not responsible for what she promises. I'm responsible for what I promise no matter what she does. Why? Because God is a witness between me and her. He is the covenant enforcer. It has to do with me being faithful, not just to her, but faithful to him and to the covenant he has with me in Christ. He's promising to love your spouse, to faithfully strive to the best of our ability, to honor them, to cherish them, to forgive them. And this is important because sometimes people think the vow of the vows negatively. I've had people actually say to me, well, I'm going to keep my vow. I'm not going to divorce. That is not, that is not the thrust of your vow. Right? That's the duration of your vow. Till death do you part. Right? That's the duration, but the thrust of your vow is positive. I will love, I will honor, I will cherish. You're not keeping your vows. If you are not striving with all of of your faithfulness to God to love your spouse in the way you have promised that you would. My friends, the vow is not just to stay married. The vow is to love, to honor, to cherish. In sickness and in health, in good times and the bad, you know, the vows, we take the vows for the hard times. I don't need a vow to bind me to my spouse when things are easy and good. I need a vow to bind me to my spouse when they're not so good and when they're hard. They bind us by our promises made before a holy God who stands as a witness over us. When when we've had hard times, I can honestly say I'll end up in the other room. Sometimes you go to your, each go to your corner, right? You know, I find myself, you know, in the other room, and, there, you know, there's tension in the air, you know. But that is the moment. I can play the tape about, you know, her problems and why she, I'm so mad at her or whatever she's done. But that is a moment for me to say, God, how do I keep my vow? How do I... Fix this. How do I do what is right? How do I please you in this situation? What does it look like to be your man and to keep my vows and to love her and to honor and cherish her even when we're fighting or even when there's been this moment? It's especially in the worst of times that we stand before God in our vows. Your job is to keep your vows. You're responsible to Him. And so we have to seek the grace and the power to be promise keepers. To I twice, verse 15 and verse 16. Twice, he says, so guard yourselves in your spirit. Now, 15 and 16 apparently are notoriously difficult to translate from the Hebrew. And there's some question about what some of it means. But, there, but what is clear, the first part is what's unclear. Guard yourselves in your spirit. There are ways to interpret that, that this is God's spirit guarding or that you guard yourself in your spirit, and there's some question about it, but what is, what, is, what is indisputable is that the issue is spiritual. There's spiritual work to be done. And the second part is as clear as a bell. Let none of you be faithless. There's spiritual work to be done to go, in the heart, to, in the spirit to guard ourselves so that we will not be faithless to the wife of our youth. That's very clear. And he says it twice. You notice that 15 ends that way, and 16 he reiterates it. When something is said twice, we know that it is important, and in some ways this is at the heart of the passage. Marriage is not between, this is why God says, I, I stand as a witness between you and the wife of your youth. And what this is telling us is that marriage is not just about you and your spouse. And it will fall apart quickly if you think it is just about you and them. Right? It's more like the triangle <laughs> you know, where both of you are connected to God and the vows before him. And that connects you together. But our vows are, are as much about our relationship with God as it is about our relationship with our spouse because to be faithful and to keep my vows to her is to be faithful in following Christ and honoring God in the way that I'm married. A failure to love our spouse is a failure to honor God. When we are faithless to our spouse, we are faithless to his name, as he has already said earlier. The verse 16 says, the New American Standard famously translate the first phrase there. Here it says, for the man who does not love his wife but divorces her. Uh, the NIS famously translate that, uh, God saying, I hate divorce. Most of you have heard that. This is the text where that is. Interestingly, that's notoriously difficult to translate. There's a lot of question about whether God is actually the subject of the verb. There's, there's more uh, consensus that the that the person, the man or the woman, the spouse, is the subject of the verse. So the man or the woman who does not love or hates his spouse but divorces them. The NIV says the man who hates and divorces his wife. So again, the man is the subject, the man who hates and divorces, the man who does not love but divorces. Now, God probably and does hate marriage. It's clear, I think, from all of this. The question is just, is that what it's saying right here? But either way, either way, it's saying either God hates it because of the violence, right? And that's verse 16. The man who does, if God hates divorce, the man hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, it covers his garment with violence. It's a violence violence. Either way, it's a form of violence against a covenant partner between children financially and community. Early in my marriage, I had done some studying in, in seminary and John Owen and, and dealing with sin in our lives and how to, how to fight and to, and to live a holy life. And so early on, it came to me. I, I see there's a lot of faithlessness in the Christian community But I see a lot of faithlessness in pastors and ministers. How many have fallen? How many's ministry is destroyed by a faithlessness in their marriage? And so probably 30 years ago, I could show you the page in my journal where I drew a picture, and in the middle of it was my marriage and whether I was faithful or faithless, and that if I was unfaithful in my marriage, coming out from that, I drew little lines of all the impacts this goes to his thing here that it's, it's an act of violence, right? That divorce is an act of violence. And I drew the top arrow pointing up obviously was what it would do to my relationship with God if I were to violate covenant at multiple levels in disobedience where I know. But also then the next line was out to my wife and what it would do to her, this woman who's given me the best years of her life and bore my children and what violence it would do in that relationship. And then there's a line going out to my children who look to me and and, and the ways that it might affect my relationship with them or their own conceptions of marriage and life and the the, the, the problems there. There's a line going down saying it is financially devastating and the dis dissolving of a household, but there was another line going out to my friendships and the people whose relationships I've seen divorce then not only just break, but also end up then breaking other relationships because of the way we move away from ourselves or our community. And so there was a line out to the church. What would it do to my ministry? What would it do to my relationship with you guys if, if I were to go this Route And what would it do to my testimony? I had to line out just as a witness of Christ who I say is worthy of, of my worship and worthy of my life. What does it look like if I can't figure out in humility and in grace? And somebody tell me early on, if it doesn't work at home, it doesn't work. And he says here that there is a violence. And that has helped me through the years that that image is in my head. Of the violent cost of such faithlessness. Ephesians 5 tells us that our marriages, our covenanted love with one another is a picture of God's love for us. We said last week that those sacrifices, they needed to be unblemished because they were a picture of Christ. And in the New Testament tells us that our marriages are are also a picture. They're a picture of the relationship between Christ and his church. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church. It's a picture. What does it say about Christ? When I am faithless. Husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself for her in five. 32 of the same Ephesians, he says the mystery is profound as he's been talking about husbands loving their wives and how we should treat one another. Wives respect your husbands. And and then he gets down to this mystery is profound, but I'm saying it it refers to Christ in the church. God made a covenant with us through Jesus and the shedding of his blood. We take communion and we say this cup is the new covenant in his blood. And through that, through the death of Christ and his love for us and our our relationship with him, he has covenanted with us, with with his church. It's a structured relationship in blood where he has promised to love us and to save us and to keep us. He's covenanted to relentlessly move toward us and he does how faithful he has been to me when I have been so faithless at times. But he relentlessly moves towards us. He he covenants his love for us and so he pursues us and he nurtures us and he cares for us and he guards us and he keeps us. My friends, it is only as we experience his relentless love and grace that we can so persistently and faithfully have any hope of loving one another so well. Apart from Jesus, he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. And I think he means any spiritual, holy, righteous good apart from him. I can tie my shoelaces without him, perhaps, if he doesn't take my breath away and cripple my hands. And in other words, he has even control of all those things. Apart from him and his grace, it gives me life and health. But especially when it comes to all these spiritual goods, apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. A love like this that we're talking about is the fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? It is by his grace and his power that he allows us, enables us to love well, to be gracious and to be forgiving and to relentlessly move toward, even when we don't want to, but by promise and by covenant, we move toward and we pursue To love well, we need to walk close to Jesus. To receive his love, to receive his grace, to know his covenanted love for us and being full of his spirit and the fruits of his spirit, we are enabled day by day to repent and to love. If Jesus loved the church and laid down his life for her, Maybe there are some here this morning, you've never experienced this covenanted love of God. You've not put your faith in Christ so you don't know his relentless, everlasting love for you, this this covenanted love that, that even survives death, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, not even in death, that we have an eternal life in a relationship with him. When we put our faith and trust in Jesus, if you've never done it, I encourage you to put your trust in Christ that by the New covenant in his blood, you would have a hope and a future as part of his church and his bride. God's love never ends. His covenant love is binding, it's durable, it's unconditional, it is beautiful, it is powerful, it is everlasting. He's faithful. He has loved you. He has covenanted with you and he will not break. He will not be found faithless. You can trust him. And when we experience the depth and the width of his love for us by the Spirit's presence and his power, then may we, by his grace and spirit, be found faithful. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have loved us with an everlasting love and I pray like Paul that you would help us to know the length and the width and the height and the depth of the love that you have for us that we would be able to grasp it in such a way that it would save our souls and enable us to be faithful we would be holy even as you are holy honoring your name in the way that we love each other and keep covenant covenant For these things we ask and we pray in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.